You're listening to the Video Marketing Podcast, helping you go a little more viral every day. Here's your host, Matt Johnston. Okay, welcome to the Video Marketing Podcast. I'm Matt Johnston. I'm so happy to have you here with us. Again, I've got a really good one in store for you today. We're going to figure out how video fits into the big picture today which is something that we probably don't talk often enough. We often talk more granularly about how to use video in specific pieces, but how does it fit into your mix? And why does content matter? I beat this drum all the time, but you gotta hear it from other people than me, because you're probably sick of hearing me talk about how important content is. Um, so I'm here with Rebecca Lieb. I'm so excited to have Rebecca here. Rebecca is a world-renowned expert in content strategy, marketing, and research, and she works with many of the world's leading brands on digital marketing innovation, including uh, Facebook, Home Depot, Nestle, Adobe, and a bunch of others. I'm sure you've heard of these brands, as have I. Uh, and she's author of Content, the Atomic Particle of Marketing, which sounds incredible. Rebecca, thank you so much for being here. Matt, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. No, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just really excited to dig into this. And what, what, what we're going to really uh, speak about today is drilling down on the why. I was telling Rebecca before we hopped on today that I spoke an event at an event yesterday and you know I did my normal spiel about the importance of content and giving value and giving and giving and giving and not taking and I got the question in that event and somebody said, "Okay, Matt, when can we expect to be profitable on this?" And I was like, uh, one, I can't answer that because it, in a way, you should just want to do it because it shows you care and it gives value and you're like giving back. And But uh, I, I told Rebecca about this and she said, oh, I can answer that question. <laughs> so, so, so why don't we just start with this? Uh, well, well, first of all, why don't we just uh, step in a little bit to, to, where, to where you came from? How did you break into the content strategy world and, 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 and what are you up to now? Okay, fair question. So I love that you asked that question in the context of a video podcast, because what very few people know about me and what's not on my bio is I spent my early career in filmmaking. My grandfather was a filmmaker. My father was a filmmaker. I've worked in production, which I never really wanted to do because I grew up in production, so that wasn't sexy. I was a film critic for 20 years. I was a variety bureau chief back when variety was the show business Bible. And so, yeah, content is in my DNA. Um, I shifted to- I love all this, by the way. So I like to watch. <laughs> I'm, so, um, I'm so excited. You and I, I think, could talk about many, many amazing things for a long probably. time. Yeah. <laughs> well, I also worked in television for several years. And one of the things I did back in the 90s, you know, when dinosaurs walked the earth, was I was head of marketing for the sci-fi channels, international operations. And back in those early, early, early internet days, we actually had an audience that was online because we were the sci-fi channel. We had digital programming. We had audiences with dial-up modems who would go online to find out you know, more information about Star Wars and Star Trek and anything Star. So mm. I got into digital very, very early. I've only worked in media. I've been a journalist, I've been in film, I've been in television. But the transition to digital was very, very normal at that time and at that place, and I never looked back. 
So I got into digital marketing and advertising after having been in, you know, film and film journalism. So I was always writing about media. Totally natural fit. Um, I was editor in chief of some of the major trades in the industry and then became a research analyst covering the spaces primarily of content marketing and content advertising. I love this. You and I actually have very similar backgrounds, and that's fascinating to me. Um, so it, it's 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 very in, it's, it's going to be very interesting to 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 dig into this. Yes, I mean, so I was all spot for video. Yeah, I mean, I was all content. I was all publishing, and you know, I ran the um, I ran the video. You know, I built video at Vulture, and so you know them because it's a variety you know, of competitors. And uh, all of these things, and I was all journalists. All I have a journalism master's degree, and I did that for years and years and years. And then I started my own company, and then basically took all of that, and I'm trying to fit it into this marketing box. And I'm trying to figure out what this mix is as well. What have I learned about being a journalist and 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 pushing out all of this content? And how does that fit into actually generating revenue for brands? And there's always a bit of a disconnect. And this is a good segue to get into this. There's always a bit of a disconnect uh, when it comes to this because we would ask questions in the content space. Like, okay, so should we do a story? So if we should do a story, I have a whole, this is a big part of my book that's coming out. It's, it's basically like, do you, you know, will it do well? And if you're a journalist, is it important? <laughs> Does it matter? Our audience. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. All of these have. things. So you're asking slightly different questions, I suppose, if you're a brand or are you? That's the question. So why? So the why, I think, is where we sort of trip up. So maybe we'll just loop back here to the question we asked at the beginning to sort of launch this conversation. How do you measure the impact that content marketing can have on your business? Okay, I'm gonna give you a simple answer and then I'm gonna give you a very complex answer. Okay. Um, one of the first pieces of research I ever published in this effort was a content maturity model. And it was, you know, how are companies investing in content strategy? Why should they do content at all? And then what are the stages of, you know, moving from experimentation to real strategy to demonstrating ROI? At the top of that calendar, sort of really, really, or at the top of that calendar, the top of that framework to really answer your question is companies that do this incredibly well and they are very few in number because most companies don't have a goal of even reaching the pinnacle of maturity is companies that sell their content marketing shifts from becoming a cost center to becoming a profit center or at least breaking even look at Red Bull they're not only running one of the biggest publishing industries known to man right now they've got record labels they've got magazines I mean, they don't have a magazine they have magazines, plural, I don't even know how many. Um, some of the stuff they're giving away, some of the stuff they're selling to consumers. They've even got a site online where the industry can go to license their content to use in commercials, feature films, documentaries. I've done it, yeah. 
Yeah, we used to have a relationship with Red Bull, actually. Yeah. When I was yeah. at Now This, we had a relationship with Red Bull. And they were like, yeah. I was running. I built the Now This sports team. And they were like, yes, you guys got to use our content and do stories on it and blah, blah, blah. They just want to get it out there. It's a great example, actually, because some people might look at that and they might say, that's a heck of a lot of resources. Are you selling soda or whatever you'd call it? Like, how, like what is, you know what I mean? But but, they're, they're, but they're, their CEO has actually said that he wants the brand to be recognized more for being a media company than a fizzy, right. red, nasty-tasting water company. And it's <laughs> happening. Um, Coca-Cola. They have branded jeans that they sell in South America with fashion shows and paparazzi and press coverage. I don't know who wants to write Coca-Cola on their butt, but that's branded content. And they're selling these jeans at prices that rival Dolce & Gabbana or Prada. So that's another example. Taking it down about a million levels. Do you know that campaign that's been running on the internet for years and years and almost, I think more than a decade now, Will It Blend by Blendtec? It's the oh. blender company where the CEO had no budget. So he invested in a lab coat and a pair of safety goggles. And he plays a game every week called Will It Blend? He drops the new iPhone in the blender and he blends it. He drops the new Nike in the blender and he blends it. These videos have millions of views. They're free to watch on YouTube, but they're so popular that if you go to Blendtec's website, you can actually buy the DVD. <laughs> and, and, and then what, but, but then what's the back end of that? Like, how, do you, how are you monetizing this? That's the okay, question. Okay, so that, question. that was the short and simple answer to, if you're <laughs> really good at this and you're probably not even trying and nor is this your goal, you can make this a profit center. One of the big mistakes that content marketers, well, made two, two, two real mistakes. One is the practice of content marketing without an underlying strategy. If you don't have a strategy, you're just Facebooking or blogging or YouTubing, you don't know what you're trying to achieve. You therefore have no system in place to measure how close or far you are from achieving that undefined end because it's undefined. So you're never gonna be able to measure your content because you have no goals. And an overwhelming number of marketers, an embarrassing number of marketers are stuck in this rut. So then you put strategy around it, but the first level of strategy that not very sophisticated marketers say is, Either we want sales based on the content or we want volume metrics. Um, Sales is sometimes measurable with content. You can measure things around sales, like are we getting more leads? Are we getting more conversions? Are people taking the desired action, like signing up for our newsletter, which puts them in the purchase funnel? Then we can communicate with them more, et cetera. But just saying sales isn't enough usually to be really able to measure it. They don't necessarily watch your video and buy your product, especially if you're selling something that costs more than a couple of bucks. Why would they? Another mistake that marketers make far too often, including the woman I spoke with today, is volume metrics. You measure that. And that is nice. It makes you feel good, especially if you're the marketer that created the content. It's not a business goal. It doesn't relate to anything that moves the needle. I was talking. So now, to, when you say value metrics, can you break that down exactly? Volume, what you mean 
volume metrics. How many likes, how many shares? Vanity metrics. Comments. It's vanity, yeah. I was talking to a woman, um, I'm here in Barcelona, I met a woman the other day who does marketing for a chain of gyms in Germany. Right now the chain is only in two German cities. She was complaining to me that her boss gave her a goal. They, he wants 10,000 more Instagram followers. Right. In China? Why? Yeah. Why? You know, it's like 10, as long as she delivers 10,000, which frankly you could buy for 20 bucks if you know the right websites, she's done her job. But even if these followers are in Berlin, this gym isn't in Berlin, it's in Stuttgart and Karlsruhe. You don't want 10,000 random followers. You want 200 more followers, but that are in the geolocation that allows them to actually become members of these facilities in these two cities. So that's one problem is not setting realistic goals. The other problem is only measuring sales. I um, mm. did some research with a colleague, Susan Etlinger, that looks at content metrics beyond just sales. And let me give you some examples. Off the top of my head, here's a video example. A company by the name of Rockenbach, uh, I think that's how you pronounce it, makes a Lego-like toy, but there's a robotic element. So think Lego that moves. Rockenbach was selling its product in bricks and mortars retail stores and doing very well, except we all know what's happening to bricks and mortar retail stores, right? Kind of down the tubes. If mm -hmm. they can't merchandise the product, they can't sell the product. So what did they do? They turned to a video strategy because if you can't see what this toy can do, and it's not a toy like for little kids, it's kind of a hobbyist toy, you know, young men build robots and monster trucks. Uh, they started making videos around the product, showing off its features and its benefits. They named the videos and used keywords that they knew were bringing people into their website. They shifted their customer base from almost 100% offline to 50% online, direct through their website, only through video, by using targeted keywords in YouTube. And then, of course, customers started uploading their own UGC, user-generated content. Like, look at the cool thing I made with Rockenbach. And now they've got, they, they literally saved their business with video marketing. That's fascinating. That's How did they distribute? So it was, it was mostly, was it mostly organic YouTube, YouTube SEO? YouTube and SEO. Those were their two tactics. Hmm. Here's another example. It's not video, but I think it's really cool. Um, I happen to be in conversation with the guy who runs Sony's um, community, you know, all their community platforms. He's based in the Netherlands. He did something that far too few content marketers do, which is at lunch, he walked around and talked to people in the organization. Because if you're in marketing, that's not where the stories are or community. The stories are out in your organization with the people who deal with your customers. He started talking to the woman who headed the call center and she mentioned that the call center was currently flooded with calls because people didn't understand how to use something really minor like a, new, a button on their new TV set or a button on the remote. The fix was stupid easy, but it had to be explained to everybody who called. 
Sony's issue was every time somebody calls the company, it costs them seven euros, which is a little more than $7 to handle the call. So this guy goes back to his desk, writes two paragraphs of content on how to fix the problem and throws it up on the website. The piece of content gets viewed 42,000 times the first week. That's nice, but that's a volume metric. But if you equate 42,000 people didn't call because they could solve their problem online. And if they didn't call, you can multiply that by seven because that's how much the call costs. What's seven times mm. 42,000? That's almost, translating euros into dollars, $350,000 of cost savings to the company in one week with one piece of content that costs nothing to produce and was done in 10 minutes. And then, of course, that content had value over time. People kept having the problem. They kept self-serving right. on the web rather than call the company. So my answer to your question is, how do you prove the ROI of content? You think past the volume metrics and translate this stuff into dollars. How much money are we saving by not having to deal with distributors and sell our stuff in stores? How much money are we earning now through an online channel that we could only previously learn offline and not shuttering our business in the meantime, as was the case with the toy company. Um, and with Sony, you know, that's a number you can take to the CFO and say, I'm not even trying. I saved you $350,000 today with one hand tied behind my back. So look at metrics beyond sales but metrics that nonetheless uh, measure business value. Starbucks, for example, has a website called My Starbucks Idea. People can post their ideas for improvements to Starbucks, features they'd like, more electrical outlets, a drink with, I don't know, cranberries in it, whatever they want. If the crowd votes it up and it's feasible, Starbucks will do it. That's R&D. Yeah. So how much money are they saving in R&D by crowdsourcing new product and service ideas? This is how you have to think of the value of content. Sales are fabulous and important and wonderful and we love them, but content can create efficiencies and save money across an organization. Can I give you one more example? Yeah. Unilever. So biggest CPG company on the planet, um, I'm not looking at the case study, but the numbers are all in the thousands, you know, tens of thousands of employees, of products, of locations, hundreds, if not thousands of agency partners around the world. So they're creating content and ads all over the globe. And they have this problem that every single locality is reinventing the wheel. Um, you know, the hero shot of the product and it has to be made by creative and then it has to be touched up Then legal has to approve it. Right. Anybody who's worked in marketing knows how time consuming and, and hair pulling adding this is. The red tape, they, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. They invested in one single universal platform and in the first year across just three brands, they saved over a billion dollars in workplace efficiencies. How so? by getting everybody on the same page, by saying this is the approved picture of Knorr's onion soup. Mm. Knorr was one of their brands that, that was part of, I think it was Knorr, surf detergent and one other product. And full disclosure, the, the platform uh, was Percolate. 
So they're not demonstrating sales at all, but if you have a really good, efficient content strategy with workplace efficiencies and you can save money on creative across the entire ecosystem of paid, owned, and earned advertising, that's some pretty good justification. I think it would be nice to go to the CFO and say, you saved a billion dollars this year. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> now, now, what about for the smaller businesses? Because I think sometimes they have a tougher time because, I mean, let's say that it's a startup that doesn't have a ton of funding and they're just trying to drum it up. Um, and in mm -hmm. fact, I, I talk to all sorts of companies all the time that I end up recommending content marketing for simply because direct response uh, paid per click advertising is not a good avenue for their product just because and I know it, and I've been in that world. Mm -hmm. So why content marketing and how do you measure that besides simply sales? If, if it's more difficult to, there's just not as many cogs, right? There's yeah. no CFO. Let me, let me give no you an, an example that I, I hit just today and that's really making news here in Europe. Um, I don't know if you or your viewers are familiar with John Lewis, the, the British retailer. And every year John Lewis makes some grand holiday video and it makes you cry and it's five minutes long and it's super viral and it's really expensive and super produced and wonderful. There are compilation reels on YouTube of John Lewis Christmas videos and they're, they're great. Today, a British hardware store in some small village that has been family owned since 1885 made a video so heartwarming that it's being compared to John Lewis's, you know, tear-tugging mm. videos. It stars the owner's two-year-old son. Uh, it's a day in his life running the hardware store. Uh, it has a soundtrack. The entire budget for the video that was shot by the family on probably an iPhone was £100, which is roughly $130, all of which went to the audio engineer. And it's gone totally viral. It's got billions of views. It, there's articles about it in, in all the major British papers today. And it's a sensation. Wow. So that's volume metrics, but it also points to another value that you can measure from your content marketing, which is the earned value from your content. Are people amplifying it? Is the press covering it? Is your audience covering it in social channels? And how much would you have to pay if you were buying that kind of coverage? Mm. So if you can calculate that to get this kind of media coverage, it would have cost us 500,000 pounds, but I spent a hundred pounds. I think you're doing pretty well. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, it's, it's, it's funny positive, because- Positive, not negative buzz. Right, right, right. I teach public relations at a college level and this is how I teach it. I basically say you can cut out the media now, you can just go direct for content. So I teach them how to create content for the purposes of PR. And that's kind of what you're saying, right? You're kind of saying if we're just creating the content directly, how much money are we saving buying traffic, buying, mm -hmm. uh, I guess, P, like, classic PR models of, 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 of getting attention. Would you say that's right? Yeah, well, um, so my colleague Jeremiah Aoyang and I, my business partner, um, we define this in research we published a few years on the convergence of paid, owned, and earned media. 
I agree with you that paid media, which is advertising, is diminishing rapidly. It's shriveling up, but it's not gone and it's never going to go away. The difference is it's not the boss of things anymore. It used to be the boss of things because it was the most expensive thing. So the way that marketing used to work was you'd come up with an idea for an ad campaign, you'd do the creative, you'd buy the media, you'd send the whole thing out, it would run eight weeks and then the whole thing was over and then you would lather, rinse and repeat, you would do it again with a whole new idea. That whole equation has been turned on its head. Now that paid owned and earned media, so owned media's content, stuff that you create yourself or control. Earned media is PR or social. It's asking people to share and amplify your message. So I don't differentiate now between PR and social media because in PR, you're saying to a journalist, would you share this message? Same thing you do on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. So it's earned. And what marketers are, oh, well, then the other thing is the convergence. Is Facebook paid owned or earned media? And the answer is yes. You know, you've got your Facebook page, you control the content on that page, but at the same time you're asking people to share, but at the same time you can advertise. And if you look at big brands, before you even go below the fold, you'll see paid owned or earned, paid owned and earned all on the same page. But the equation's on its head because rather than start with paid now, what marketers do is they create content and then they run it up the flagpole and they see who salutes and who salutes at what. And when people salute at something that's really good, then you start putting the advertising dollars behind that idea and promoting it because you know it's going to work as opposed right. to putting all these ad dollars behind ideas that are really untested outside of the conference table in the boardroom. And, you know, very often you are going to have to invest a few bucks in advertising and say, hey, we're over here with some good content, but nothing right. like before. Right. Yeah, that was my two days ago, directed by the guy who did Deadpool. It's about a three minute video, all shot on the iPhone 11. It got over three million views in less than 48 hours and they didn't spend a penny on media. Yeah, that that was sort of uh, that was going to be my next question. We we used to do the same thing when I was in the publishing world. I mean, we had so much organic traction at all these places. It was very easy to to get to get noticed but we would the the media team would buy stuff that was already going viral obviously because then you could yeah. ride the wave and they would be cheaper in the world of marketing with small businesses there's much more um there's almost it's almost like a nihilist thing right because it's kind of like i get you want me to make content and yeah i should take the best performing stuff and maybe but how do i get people to look at me in the first place nobody's even looking at me I don't have, you know, that's the tough, the tough, I think, chicken or egg yeah. arguments. Well, if you build it, they will come maybe in Las Vegas, but the internet is a much, much bigger place than Las Vegas. So yes, sometimes you have to throw some dollars at search advertising, working with influencers or coming up with some kind of flag in order to get people to look at your content. But if your content is really great, like this tiny hardware store in Britain, I wish I could remember the name and give them the love. But if you Google 
Christmas at Hardware Store UK, you'll find it. Mm -hmm. um, it'll blow up a hundred bucks. I know. No, it's this it's amazing. But of course, you have to you have to also, you have to be a good storyteller at the same time to be able to do it. So that's why it's very important to dig in and say, what are people going to connect with? Because content marketing is not transactional. It's it's emotional. I mean, that that's that's my feeling. Not entirely. Um, I'm I'm starting to take issue with this idea that content marketing is storytelling. And I'm a journalist too and an editor mm -hmm. and I love storytelling and I was a film critic, so I got nothing against storytelling. But I draw divide content marketing into three buckets. There's storytelling, which is entertaining content. And that's primarily what marketers use video for, right? The Remember back in the early days of, of banner advertising, um, you know, the cynical agency guys would go, yeah, but an ad on the internet never made you cry. Now ads on the internet can totally make you cry yeah. or laugh or share because they're movies. Right. But my second bucket, and this is not unimportant, is content that informs and educates. Um, mm -hmm. I just bought a 60 inch TV. How do I hang it on the wall? What size TV do I need if my sofa is this far away from the wall and my ceilings are that high? Um, you know, which model cell phone should I buy? The iPhone 10, the iPhone 11, whatever. People do research on perfect purchases. So informing and educating is really important and it can make the sale. Um, and then the third type of content, not a lot of video examples, but nonetheless, as long as I'm going through my list, is what I call utility content. And that's content that helps get people get stuff done. Think of a mortgage calculator or a weight loss or exercise tracker or diary mm. or those real estate applications that will not just show you houses for sale in the neighborhood, but tell you about the schools and the crime rate and the ease of parking and you know all the other things you would want to know if you were mm. moving into a community so content i don't think we often think about that as content i think but it is content mm -hmm. um somebody showed me a site the other day that a grocery store had and it's like i'm having a party and it says how many men are coming how many women how many children is it a barbecue? Well, these are the meats you can buy. And then it will tell you how much stuff to buy for these number of people. I thought it was really interesting. They broke it, broke it down by gender, like all the women who just go, I want a salad leaf. But that's utility content too. It's content, yeah. it, it helps you make the purchase. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I guess, I mean, when it comes down to storytelling, I mean, for me, really, what it comes down to is empathy. And all of those things are really empathetic. Um, if you really think about it, uh, even the, the utility stuff, I mean, again, it's not like, are the schools good? It's like, is my kid going to get bullied in school? You know, mm -hmm. like that kind of thing. And that, again, has that empathy kind of thing, um, as well as it's the getting stuff done. perspective, not the brand perspective. It's oh, and the customer's yeah. needs. Right, right, for sure. And sometimes the customer just wants to smile, and that's all those storytelling videos that you're talking about to right. make you laugh or cry. And we've seen great examples of them that have run for years. So the Will It Blend series is now running over 10 years. Um, IKEA did a web series, I think is still running for, you know, 
called Easy to Assemble, calling starring Ileana, what's her last name, the Hollywood actress, Ileana Douglas. It has Hollywood stars popping in and out as Ikea employees. It's funny. It's informative. And it's, it's Ikea, but it could be television. Right. And so I guess that sort of content like that is great, especially in video, because it really helps you not have to reinvent the content wheel every week because you're just like, oh, I'm making episode three. I'm making episode four rather than what kind of content should we do today? Right, right. And th- th- there's obviously a lot of talk about thing- generally things moving to video. Um, how do you think that changes the, well, f- first of all, do you agree with that? And second of all, how do you think that that changes the landscape of content marketing? Because it is interesting when it comes to, for example, you know, there's, and there still are people that are making millions of dollars just doing SEO for blogs, right? Um, and you can do that on YouTube, although you probably can't make as much money doing it, but well, through direct search advertising, but um, it's just sort of different as far as the discoverability of this content. But at the same time, these platforms tend to be pushing video content as well. Um, so wh- how do you feel like things are evolving and moving right now? Well, video is becoming increasingly popular because broadband is increasingly available and phones are getting better. So it's a lot easier to self-serve video than it was 10 years ago. That said, I'm not going to say video is the right content for everything all the time. For example, internet prime Mm -hmm. time is still during office hours and people tend to work in open plan offices. So is video with audio always the best solution? Is the person that you want to reach sitting at their desk with headphones on right this minute? Because video could be really intrusive. You might want to have visual content or graphics to back up what you're saying in video based on who your target audience is, what their media preferences are, and what their media preferences when are. Video might be something you're more inclined to do at home rather than doing during office hours, depending on where you work. Um, You've also got to think of the platform people are consuming content on. Uh, You know, it's all well and good to make Ben-Hur, but if people are watching that on a smartphone, not so much. I just saw an interview with Scorsese talking about the Irishman and he's saying, please don't watch, watch it on your phone, even though you can, you know, oh if, you're gonna, yeah. if you're going to watch it on Netflix, he said, it, you, at least use the biggest iPad there is. I've loved the big film directors over time coming out. I mean, one of my favorites, David Lynch, was one of the first people to rail against this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Stop. Well, he was just mad. I mean, and he doesn't really get mad. I mean, I'm assuming you've seen interviews with David Lynch. He's very happy-go-lucky. As weird as he is, he's so happy-go-lucky, but he's like, don't watch the freaking video on your phone. Um, it's funny. I think I, th- I think the first time I did watch Eraserhead, I watched it on my phone when I was a New York City commuter, too. He would hate me, as big of a David Lynch fan as I am. But, um, <laughs> yeah, mom's the word. Right, right, right. Okay, so, so, so just to boil it down to practicality so that people have the takeaway here. So if I'm a small or medium-sized business and I'm, and I'm listening to this podcast, and I've gotten all of this and I've started to understand it, and I want to get started with content, but I've had a hard time justifying investments in content to myself because it is cheap but if you're a small or medium-sized business you're still pushing around resources it's, you're still saying where's my 50 bucks gonna go no money and it's everything right. is resources right so what are the first what is the what, what are the first um 
couple of questions you need to ask yourself about content and video strategy and uh, how to move forward with it and to what, actually have a strategy. What can we, how can we address our consumer issues with content? Do we want to inform and educate them? Do we want to entertain them? What is our goal and how will we measure progress towards that goal? Because otherwise you're just doing something and you'll never, never, ever know if it worked. And so you have no justification for moving forward. So don't do the tactics without putting some sort of strategic framework around it. Know why, who, and how you're going to measure that why and who. And it can be loose. I think one of the reasons people are reluctant to put strategy around things is they think strategies are immutable. And once I make these definitions, I won't be able to change it. Of course you yeah. can change it. But if you don't have some business structure around why this might benefit our company or our business or our problem or their problem, then there's no reason to do it. Now, what about goals? What kind of goals should we set? You know, I've said seen really simple things that are just straight lead generation. Um, the internet is full of how to fix your toilet videos and people showing sure. you step by step. And then the last screen is, and if you failed, call this number and we will come over to your house and fix your toilet. So this is content that, you know, anybody with a, with a mobile phone can make. And it addresses a consumer problem. You're showing that you're trying to help them, but you're also conveying your expertise and generating, hopefully, leads and new business out of that. Very, very simple idea. And patience, I would say. Uh, because, because often with content marketing, it tends to be a very slow climb, and, and, but, but then it can deliver for a very long period of time. Yeah, and you are speaking knowledgeably about search so that you know it takes a while to gain authority. Sometimes you need to do this on multiple platforms. You know, use your Facebook page to drive people to YouTube. Use YouTube to drive people to your website. Think about a virtuous circle of content so that different people with different channel proclivities and browsing habits can find you. You don't have to be everywhere. But think of maybe three pillars to hold up the tent. Yeah, yeah. I think, I, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And then how do we know if it's working? I think is the last sort of piece of that. How do we know what to continue with and what to not continue with? Besides sort of the basic, like, are we getting leads or sales or not? Mm -hmm. is, there, is there any other flags? Um, so is it resonating with your audience? You can measure likes and shares, but what you have to do is measure what's getting the likes and shares and what's not getting the likes and shares. And this tells you, this is what we should be doing more of, and that's what we should be doing less of. Then you're directing your, your resources and your energy more wisely. You can also do things like define lead generally. You know, we'd like to get more leads, maybe not more sales, but we'd like to have more people download our ebook, request, you know, a sign up for our newsletter, because then those are people you can market further to, or get more inbound phone calls and inquiries to the company. Maybe you're setting up a special offer or a contest. Are you getting traction there? And can you then market to those people? Are we shortening our sales cycle because people have more information about the product or service that we're selling? So instead of taking six months to win a new customer, it's only taking us three months. That's a win. Yep. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I, I talk about all the time how I do feel like, and you sort of talked about it earlier, about how I, I do feel like there's a bit of a, a bubble around digital advertising right now, pay-per-click digital advertising. And if you want to survive, I feel like you need a brand. And I personally feel like the way to build that brand is through content. Um, so if you're also thinking about your long-term future, this will help secure that as well. And then you'll get the long tail benefits of having that content as well. And you just, it feel, you feel like you, you know, when you consume a brand's content, you feel like they care in a way because there's mm -hmm. service. And it's personal. And personal. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Rebecca, thank you so much. Tell us more about your book and where we can find out more about you. I'm going to get the book right after this. Thank you. So my website is RebeccaLieb.com. It's L-I-E-B. And my book is on Amazon and all the places that sell books. It's called Content, the Atomic Particle of Marketing. And uh, drop me a line and let me know what you think of the book. I love it. Yo, yes, I absolutely will. Thank you, everybody, for joining me. Uh, this, has been, this has been fantastic. It was nice to think a little bit differently in this podcast today. Uh, if you got value here, and I certainly hope you did, that's why I do this it's for value. Um, it, uh, if, if, if you content marketing, you know, yeah, of course, this is just another form of content marketing, audio, video, all over the place. Uh, if, if if you got value today, uh, please leave us a review. Uh, I know it. I know it helps us uh, surface a little bit higher, and so more people can hear about us. Uh, we appreciate you as always. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you soon.